Hello Think Anesthesia podcast subscribers. I am Amanda Shelby, RVT and BTS in Anesthesia and Analgesia, and the Anesthesia Solutions Coordinator for Jurox Incorporated. In celebration of Veterinary Technician Week 2021, we are interviewing career veterinary technicians. For this episode, I am honored to introduce the one and only Darcy Palmer. She's an LVT and BTS in Anesthesia and Analgesia. And of course, she's a career veterinary technician in anesthesia and analgesia. Since credentialing, she has worked as an anesthesia technician at several veterinary teaching hospitals, including Washington State University, Auburn University, and Tuskegee University, where she now serves as an anesthesia surgery technician, as well as provides clinical instruction to veterinary students. Of course, she's worked in a variety of private practices as well. She is active in NAPTA and on the committee of uh, veterinary technician specialists and has served the ABTAA, the credentialing body for the VTS as an anesthesia and analgesia for many years in various capacities, but most notably as a past president and executive secretary. Of course, she is a VSPN course instructor, so you might know her from there. And she is one of the three administrators of the Facebook group Veterinary Anesthesia Nurse. With that, welcome Darcy. Thank you, Amanda. Excellent. I'm going to jump in and just say that I did some creepy Google stalking, and I heard <laughs> that your interest in veterinary me medicine really blossomed from when you were looking for a vet for your hand-raised pot belly pig. So would you like to share a little bit more about that story and how you found your inspiration to pursue a career as a credentialed veterinary technician? Certainly. So my pig's name was Widget. And my aunt raised him. So she gave him to me as a present when I was a sophomore in high school. And I love that pig. That pig was amazing. <laughs> we were looking for a veterinarian for him and a new practice had just opened. And so I just went there and asked them if they saw potbelly pigs. And I got to talking with the doctor and said that I was interested in veterinary medicine and could I come uh, shadow and just kind of watch. And they were like, sure, come on. And so I started going there after school and I just was observing a little bit here and there. And then they finally asked me if I wanted a job. And so of course I jumped on that and things just kind of progressed from there. So I ended up working for that veterinarian and that practice all through high school and went off to college, but I would come home on the summers and I worked for him all through the summers. He was actually the one who uh, encouraged me to look into the career field of veterinary technology. And I never actually heard about it. So I have a four-year degree, bachelor's degree. So when I graduated college and came back to work for him, he was like, you need to do this. And so I looked into it and at the time, so way back a long time ago, grandfathering or an alternative pathway in Washington state was available because I'd worked for him for so many years. I was eligible to take the VTNE and I took it and I passed and became a credentialed technician. So that kind of started my path of being a credentialed technician. And then interestingly, I ended up meeting my husband at that practice and he was wanting to go to vet school. And so he had applied to Washington State University, got accepted. And so we ended up moving to Pullman. And 
at the time I was working at an equine only practice with that doctor. And so when I went down to Pullman, I was like, hey, I'm going to try to get a job as an equine veterinary technician. And I interviewed and they said, well, we don't actually have anything open in equine, but we do have a spot in anesthesia. We are desperate for anesthesia. And I was like, no, I was like, anesthesia scares the crap out of me. There's no way that I want a job in anesthesia. And they're like, well, here's the thing. If you want a job, you're going to have to interview for anesthesia. So I was like, okay. <laughs> so I went into the interview and I really think that one of the reasons that they liked me is because I had horse experience and one of the anesthesiologists was a big dressage person. And so she was like, yes, we want her. This is great. I did have a little bit of anesthesia experience, but I would not call it proper anesthesia experience in the least. So they took a chance on me and I started out and that was probably one of the steepest learning curves that I have ever had in my life. But I had some of the absolute best mentors that took me under their wing. They really instilled a love of learning for me. And from that point forward, I guess the rest is history because it was them it was the residents and the anesthesiologists that worked at WSU that really ignited that uh, light for anesthesia and that lifelong learning that kind of the journey I've been on since then. I love that you shared with us that an anesthesia was intimidating at the beginning. I was going to question oh. uh, a little bit from a previous interview I dug up online that, <laughs> you, you know, you were downright scared of it to begin with. And, Absolutely. you know, I, I just want you to highlight, if you could, to our listeners, how you really overcame that fear. And then obviously that developed into your career passion. I, I think it was just the support that I had around me. Um, there was another technician that started within two weeks of myself starting in the anesthesia department. And I can recall the two of us having such highly emotional days that we would just escape out into the sterile corridor and just cry on the gurneys. We would just have our little, our little breaks where we just needed to release. And because we had each other, we leaned on one another a lot to, um, you know, just, okay, this is what happened today. And this is what I went through. And, and that really helped us just kind of pick it up and, and keep going. But Ultimately, what allowed us to stay engaged was just the support that we had from the doctors. There was one of the anesthesiologists who went out of her way to ensure that the technicians were properly trained. And the residents that we had at that time, they wanted you to succeed. And so they would have round sessions with us on a regular basis. They encouraged us to get out there. And if a student brought a particular topic to, for discussion and we didn't know about it, they didn't just give us the answer. They said, hey, go out, read this article. Here's this article for you. Read about it and come back and tell me what you learned. And so they encouraged us to go out there and learn for ourselves and find the information, but they were right there to support us through anything that we needed. So I, I think that was what really instilled a lifelong learning for myself because I, I wanted to learn. I wanted to know. I wanted to be able to have a discussion with the vet students and be confident in what I was telling them. 
yeah, having a enriching, good cultured environment for that is definitely impactful. And, and I, I had the same experience at my first university job as well. So that is wonderful to hear. There's um, consistencies throughout that environment for that learning and encouragement. So I'd like to ask you how being a credentialed veterinary technician, as well as a veterinary technician specialist in anesthesia and analgesia, has aided you in securing future employment positions as you've gone through your career. And I know that you and your husband have had to relocate several times. So how did being credentialed and having a VTS in anesthesia really aid you in securing your next position? I, I think that... The VTS title is extremely powerful. Uh, I 100% know that that VTS title alone has opened up so many doors and opportunities for me, but that just got my foot in the door. What really secured those positions was my ability to go in and be confident in the knowledge that I was bringing to the table by showing. So I didn't just go and write a bunch of fluff and say, oh, I can do this, but not be able to follow through with actually demonstrating or showing that I could do it. So to have the skills and the knowledge to go into a practice and be confident in what I was saying and what I was doing, I think was a big part of it. Now, I'm not going to go into a practice and be like, hey, I can do this, stay out of my way. I would always go into a practice and say, here's what I can bring to the table and let me have the opportunity to show you. And I think that has re really opened the doors for me to go other places outside of Washington State. When we moved down to Alabama, I came into a completely brand new environment and the rumor on the street was, oh, this person's coming to the university and she's got a VTS and, you know, and, and they kind of, I mean, Southern people are not standoffish, so that's the wrong word to use, but they had an impression of me before I even stepped foot in that hospital, and they were not expecting to like me at all, and, and I get it. I totally understand, so I had to come into that, to that university and say, hey, I'm not, I'm not here to, to say that you guys are doing things wrong or that things are not being done right. But if I see something, I'm going to say, hey, did you think about this? Or, hey, what about this? Can we do this option? And as just as much as they were learning from me, I was learning from them. Because I think that's a, a huge part of this is that just because you have a VTS does not mean you know it all. You will never know everything there is to know about veterinary anesthesia. Even in a lifetime, you will never know it all. So if you go into a new situation and you have an open mind to learn and to want to see what other people bring to the table, it doesn't matter what your credentials are. If your mind is open, you're going to learn something. And so I learned tons from people that had been at Auburn University for 15, 20 years that I had never thought about thinking about a certain situation in that in that light. And so just turning it around and seeing a different point of view opened my eyes and allowed me to learn and further my knowledge and my skill level. And so I always saw it as a win-win. And then pretty much every place that I have been since then has been just that. I go into a practice with an open mind. Here's what I have to offer and here's what I'm wanting to learn in return. So it's a kind of a uh, one of those 
relationships where everybody wins. That's really wonderful. It's like collecting all the different tools in your toolbox Absolutely. to be as successful as possible. You've obviously had a lot of leadership roles in our profession in veterinary medicine, even outside of just anesthesia and analgesia, serving on credentialing bodies, NAFTA, the CVTS, just obviously to name a few. Do you have any words of encouragement for someone who's looking to add that experience to their CV? Well, I think that to get started, you have to have a passion for change. And I think anybody that has been in veterinary medicine for a period of time is going to see that there's a lot of negative aspects to this profession that maybe when I started out 20 plus years ago, I was completely blind to. And the more that I'm in the profession, you see some of those negative things that occur. And so I wanted to be part of the change. And I wanted to be in a situation where I could help promote change or empower change to occur in a multitude of different aspects. When I first became a VTS technician, I saw the need to change things with our application process. And so I got involved to be part of that change. And that led me into eventually taking on a leadership role position within the academy. And once I finished that term out, I kind of was asked to step into the executive secretary role. So I've taken that on now, but it, it's all just the heart of just wanting to be part of change and wanting to promote the best aspects of this profession and do what I can do my part in helping to weed out some of the negative aspects. So in every leadership role that I've taken, it's because I've wanted to be part of that change. And you've definitely done a wonderful job of empowering others to help with those changes as well. So you're not giving yourself enough credit in all the things that you have done for our profession. Um, so we really appreciate that. I want to close with a question that might be challenging to answer with your unique perspective from being a veterinary technician that provides educating the next generation of veterinarians in veterinary teaching hospitals. I, I really would like to know what is it that really fuels the unique perspective being a veterinary technician provides in educating the next generation of our future employers, veterinarians? Yes, it's a great question. And I think that the answer stems from the fact that anesthesia is scary. And no matter how long you've been in practice, there's always going to be a component of it that's scary. But one of the downsides to at least anesthesia is people get in their comfort zone and they don't want to get out of their comfort zone. And so we've got veterinarians out there in practice now that have been practicing for 20, 30, 40 plus years, and they're still doing anesthesia like they were when they graduated vet school because they're comfortable with what they know and they don't want to change. And I, I think that a lot of those veterinarians are where this new age of veterinarians or veterinary students are coming out and they're going to take over these practices. So these older veterinarians that are getting ready to retire, they are having these new grads come into their practices to basically take over the practice. 
but they work with them for a couple of years. And so all of the things that the older veterinarians are doing, the younger crowd ends up adapting to. And one of the reasons that I feel that is, is because some of the things that we teach in vet school, anesthesia is not a large part of vet school. It's not a large part of the NAVLI at all. It's kind of a side thought, to be honest, at least in my opinion. And so the students are not equipped with enough knowledge to go out into these practices that they're taking over and stand their ground and say, hey, no, I, I learned it a different way. And this is what we're going to do moving forward. If they don't have the confidence to go out into practice and be able to say, this is why I want to do something different, then they're just going to conform to the way that it always has been. And, and then nothing gets changed and standards of anesthesia practice don't improve. And so I, I teach the vet students starting their sophomore year and I teach them the foundation principles of anesthesia. And then we move into junior surgery where they're actually get to anesthetize real patients. And then I follow them through and I am talking with them about clinical cases when they are fourth year students on the surgery anesthesia rotation. And so I have basically changed my way of teaching them in that I am empowering them to go out into these practices and have that confidence and have that knowledge and realizing that anesthesia is actually a job of a veterinary technician. But the reality is that there's not enough veterinary technicians out there to staff as many veterinary practices as there are. And so if you don't have a credentialed veterinary technician in your practice, who has training and knowledge of how to perform anesthesia, it falls back on the doctor. So the doctor needs to have a good foundation of anesthesia practices and principles so that they can teach their staff the proper way to do anesthesia, monitoring. I mean, every aspect of anesthesia is something that a technician can do but ultimately the doctor is the one overseeing that. And so these vet students, when they go out into practice, they have to know it well enough to teach their staff and then also be the one overseeing things as the case goes on. So if I can empower these vet students to at least have the ability to go out and be confident in their knowledge so that when they go out into practice, they can see, okay, that practice is outdated and we need to change it, then I feel like I'm doing my itty bitty little bitty tiny part of trying to change anesthesia for the better, change the anesthesia practices for the better. And just to put a frame of reference on the lives, the veterinarians specifically, we're not even talking te technicians here and all of the technicians you work with, anybody going for their VTS and anesthesia and analgesia knows and has spoke to you in some capacity before credentialing, but not even thinking technicians. I mean, you're teaching 80 to 100 kids, maybe not kids, adults, <laughs> veterinarians <laughs> a year, and you've been doing it for greater than 15 years. 20. Yeah. yeah. That's a lot of people. Yeah. So yeah. again, we're interviewing Darcy Palmer. <laughs> Obviously, 
major contributor to the veterinary technician profession, but also a significant contributor to many veterinarian career paths. And for that, we sincerely thank you, Darcy, for all of your contributions to our organizations and our credentialing bodies and our future livelihoods. So thank you, Darcy. Well, thank you, Amanda. I appreciate you having me. In the second half of our Think Anesthesia podcast for the 2021 Veterinary Technician Appreciation Week, we are interviewing Jessica Sosa, an LVT who currently serves as a biological science laboratory technician for the Center for Animal Care Sciences at the Smithsonian Conservation Biology Institute, National Zoological Park in Washington, D.C. And Rio, her South American Amazonian parrot, is also in the background. So if you hear him, he might have something to say today. Welcome, Sosa. Thank you for having me. That title was a mouthful for me to say. Could you tell us a little bit more about your day-to-day responsibilities in your current role? I'm a veterinary technician at the Smithsonian National Zoo in Washington, D.C. The title is a umbrella uh, title with the HR department for the government to which multiple specific roles are hired into with animals all day long. I do some animal care, we do routine exams, we do trauma cases, we do preventative medicine for zoo animals. We also have a pharmacy component and we have people scheduled to the pharmacy filling any prescriptions that the veterinarians have submitted. And then the other rotation is the clinical side where we have animals come up for routine exams or checks that need to happen reported by the animal care staff. And then we also have a quarantine component, which we have hospital keepers, animal keepers that care for those animals as they are joining the collection. So you work on a wide variety of species. Tell us a little bit about where your passion for zoological medicine began, how long that road was to securing a position in your current role. So I started in surgery, but before that, I actually worked in human medicine for a while before realizing that I, in fact, do want to work in the animal field. And I've always had a passion for zoo and wild animals and the conservation message behind zoological associations. The message in the zoo community is strong for conservation and what drove me to be a part of that community and to just help save species, essentially. You just highlighted how zoological medicine and veterinary medicine really is complementary to that conservation role. Thank you for that. How hard was it to get a job at the National Zoo? That's like In my mind, that's like the cream of the crop, top of the top. How did you know how to find a position specifically with a title that does not say veterinary technician? So I actually started in surgery with the plan to wind up in the zoological medicine department at the University of Florida, but I had to start somewhere. (laughs) And so I loved surgery. Most people say you love where you first begin, your humble beginnings. And so I loved surgery, but the ultimate goal from the beginning was to then transition from there into the zoo med ward and no positions were available at the time. That opportunity happened approximately a year 
after being hired in surgery. I did my interview and I was uh, fortunate enough to be offered the position and worked there for my remaining time at the University of Florida and gained so much experience and really enjoyed academia and helping students and just the, the fast pace of things, but also was looking forward to any opportunity where I could follow the progress of the patient. And we didn't really have much of that opportunity in the university setting. Pretty much my driving force to find a position within the zoo so I could develop those type of relationships and follow these cases a bit more closely. One of the residents for the zoological medicine department actually had done her PhD work with the reproductive sciences department at the Smithsonian National Zoo. And she was um, my resident at the time. And she was the one who was notified that a position was available at the National Zoo. And she brought that to my attention and encouraged me to apply. And I did apply and I was, you know, very excited to hear back from them. And then my bubble got burst when they give, gave me a phone interview and then they notified me later that someone else was selected. You know, it was a bummer, but we kept on going and the, another position opened up and she brought me that information again and encouraged me to reapply. And so I did again. And the same process, the first notification was a phone interview. And uh, after the phone interview, got another notification to say that someone else was selected. And so at that point, I was starting to feel a little bit of defeat and <laughs> figured, okay, well, there goes opportunity number two. The University of Florida is my home. Shortly after that, another position opened up and the same resident brought that to my attention again. And at that point I told her, nope, I'm not doing it. I've done it twice. I just don't think it's going to happen for me. And she encouraged me again and said, you've already done the hard steps. The application process itself is like an hour or so long. And all that information is already saved. And all you have to do is hit resubmit. What do you have to lose? And so I attempted it again for the third time. got my phone interview, which I was expecting because that was the, the pattern from before. And I got another call back after that saying, Hey, we'd like to meet you in person. Can you come out? And of course I jumped on that plane, did my interview and we had just kind of a day at the zoo kind of thing. And then back on the plane the same day and back to Florida. Luckily I didn't have to wait too long with the government. There is a process where you may have to wait a little while to hear back. But one of the vets gave me a call to, to give me the heads up. They were submitting to HR to let them know that I would be selected, but she wanted to let me know before HR contacted me because they do take a little bit of time. She gave me a call and said, just so you know, we're offering you the position. You're going to take it, right? <laughs> and I said, yes, I'm definitely taking it. I was just so happy. Three times was a charm. It is a competitive field. I think many people are interested in working in zoological medicine for various reasons. I did have to outcompete. And then also the government itself is, adds a little bit more competition on top of everything else because veterans get preference and those type of things. I learned from that to just be tenacious <laughs> and continue. That's something that you uh, really want to go for. 
I was able to achieve it. So it, it was a long process. I was ecstatic when it was finally done and I haven't regretted it ever since. It sounds like patience and persistence pays off. Yes, for sure. So you highlighted working for a state institution and transitioning to a federal institution. I'm assuming there are benefits in work-life balance that really complement our role as veterinary technicians or outcompete some of our other career options. Would you speak to that at all? Working for the government, most people may already know this, but you do have a pretty comfortable benefits package as far as health and retirement and those type of things. Those are things that are important to some people, maybe not so important to others, but if you're a planner and you're thinking about the future, those are all pretty important. There are early retirement options as well and additional benefits uh, for being employed with the government. State employment also has its additional benefits, but I would say not not on the level of federal. So it's one of the main reasons I have continued um, to be employed with the Smithsonian, of course, aside from the fact that I love what I do, but it's an added bonus to have the retirement options and the benefits with your health. You also get little perks in local areas for being government employees, like your cell phone provider and those kind of things. So it's nice to have those additional discounts or whatnot for being a government employee. There's also well-respected schedule as far as what is expected. However, when you're working with an, with the animal, with the collection and the responsibility is to care for those animals, you are also considered a emergency personnel. And so whenever there are environmental conditions that most people would stay home for or different things like that, you may be expected to uh, still come in and provide care and service to those animals. We are a museum, we're considered a museum, but we are the only museum that has a live collection. And so where other museums can close up shop and come back in two days, we can't do that. We still have to feed and water and clean and train and treat <laughs> various animals. We definitely have experienced over the past year, year and a half, the definition of an essential employee. With that, I do like to highlight that you've mentioned veterinary technology is a career path. It's a lifelong career path. And thinking of our future and those benefits do contribute to the value uh, personally, benefits being like health insurance and quality retirement contributions and the other axillary discounts all add up to paying that employee as well. Speaking of it being a career path and longevity, we're thinking long-term here, where do you see yourself going in the future? So, you know, this particular field can be quite physically demanding. And when you're much younger in life or much earlier in your career, that's not a problem. You can, you can jump out of the back of a van with a 400 pound lion and three other people helping you and be just fine. But eventually the physical aspects can catch up with you and your progression in life, <laughs> putting it mildly. And then you may find yourself in a situation where you're wondering what the next step is. Like you never think that you would not retire from this career. I thought this is what I love. This is what I'm retiring from. This is my, my golden nugget, so to speak. But 
you have to be prepared for the physical aspects of it eventually catching up to you. Now, if you're in great shape and super healthy and don't have any issues, there are plenty of people that go through this career and even working in large animal, any other of those physically taxing areas through retirement. And they're retired and home mucking stalls and chucking hay and hay bales and stuff. And they still got it. And that's great, but it doesn't always work out that way for everybody. And so it's good to explore what are your other options within your career. With this career, I've always just kept them in my mind going from here. Where would I go where I could still use my expertise, still use my experience, but for a different cause. And so some areas can be pharmaceutical reps. But I really, personally, I wanted to stay in the government. I've put in over 11 years already, and it would be a bit foolish of me (laughs) to not continue uh, with my retirement plan at this point. And so there are other opportunities within a zoo that go beyond the veterinary hospital. And those include anything in admin, curator positions within the different areas of the zoo, nutrition. The lab also has varying positions that are less physically demanding. So there are a couple of opportunities to think of when you realize, or if you realize that your body can no longer accommodate the needs of the clinical aspect of your job. So for me, I see myself eventually in an administrative management support type of position I think that's really important to highlight that the clinical roles and and skills that you've gained from there gives you a unique perspective or any of us in this career path, a unique perspective when the demands on our body or whatever those might be, there's not a good balance there anymore. Those experiences give us leverage into those other roles as well. So last but not least, I want to ask you if someone is listening today and they're like, I really want to find that position at a zoo. Maybe it's the National Zoo. Maybe it's their local zoo, so they don't have to relocate. How do they get that connection to make that application and be a serious consideration for the job? In Zoo Medicine, I've seen more and more the interest in internships and any kind of exposure that you can get beforehand. That can be in volunteer work or internship opportunities in medicine in general, I would recommend, if possible, securing an internship or an externship. That would be the best bet because you do get hands-on abilities there with the technical aspects of the care. Every employer is going to be different. You just want to have experiences on your resume that really highlight that you're not coming in super green and that you have dabbled in the field here and there, because there are people also that come in and realize, oh, wait, this is different than what I thought. And I also think it's beneficial to you, the applicant, to do what you can to figure that out before securing a position. So I would say try to get exposure through whatever avenue and make sure you highlight that on your application and your resume as much as possible. And make sure that you do have a heart for saving species, because that is why I do what I do. That's our main focus, and that's what we see as important. It's fulfilling to be part of that movement, but it's also fulfilling to be on the receiving end where you get to enjoy 
seeing all of your hard work and efforts. As with that, we thank you for you taking time to share your experience with us and your unique path as a career veterinary technician. You're more than welcome. Thank you for having me.